Welcome to MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Labs Alliances podcast series. My name is Steve Lewis. I am the Assistant Director of Global Strategic Alliances for CSAIL at MIT. In this podcast series, I will interview principal researchers at CSAIL to discover what they're working on and how it will impact society. Manolis Kellis is an Associate Professor of Computer Science at MIT, a member of the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, and the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, where he directs the MIT Computational Biology Group. He has received the U.S. Presidential Early Career Award in Science and Engineering for his NIH R01 work in computational genomics. He was recognized for his research in genomics as one of the top young innovators under the age of 35 by Technology Review Magazine and one of the principal investigators of the future by Genome Technology Magazine. He received the Gregor Mendel Medal for Outstanding Achievements in Science by the Mendel Lectures Committee and was also listed as one of three young scientists representing the next generation in biotechnology by the Boston Museum of Science. He obtained his PhD from MIT, where he received the Sproul's Award for the Best Doctorate Thesis in Computer Science and was the recipient of the first Paris Kanellakis Graduate Fellowship. Prior to computational biology, he worked on artificial intelligence, sketch and image recognition, robotics, and computational geometry at MIT and at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center. Since you last joined us back in February of 2020, a lot has happened in the world, especially pertaining to public health. How has this affected your research into disease in public health? So there's, uh, there's really been uh, just a, drama- a dramatic shift in the whole world. So basically, we saw our world change in front of our eyes. And uh, it has affected so many people, uh, so many uh, lost loved ones, so many lives lost, so much livelihood lost. At the same time, we saw the best of humanity come together. We saw uh, scientists across industry, academia, healthcare, really coming together as a joint force to do everything we can to address this pandemic. So every person putting their uh, best technologies, their best ideas uh, to mind to address as a common humanity this plague that is, uh, you know, killing so many of of our loved ones. And uh, in the world of genomics in particular, there was this dramatic speed up in the sharing of information, in the dissemination of information, which was truly a glimmer of hope amidst uh, so much tragedy. So uh, if you look at the speed with which the vaccines were developed, the genome was first published in late January and the first vaccine design was completed less than 40 days later. And the first production started happening, you know, on, on, on the order of months. And the approval was done in less than nine months from the design of the vaccine. This is unprecedented. Vaccine development typically requires years and sometimes decades to sort of go through all of the layers of designing the vaccine, learning about the new pathogen, identifying the the pathogen itself, figuring out its genome, et cetera. So we've seen the, the power of genomics really come to life with this pandemic. Our own group has an expertise in genomics, in understanding genomes, in understanding what's inside genomes. And we also, uh, just like every scientist in the world, uh, try to contribute to best we can to the understanding of this pandemic. So the first thing we did immediately uh, last year uh, in February and March 
is use our comparative genomics techniques for understanding the SARS-CoV-2 genome, the genome of the pathogen of the virus that underlies uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So you would think that a genome so small of only 29,000 nucleotides would be trivial to understand and would already be well sorted out. Uh, the human genome that our group has worked to annotate is actually 3 billion nucleotides long. So we're talking about four orders of magnitude uh, difference between, between the two, actually five orders of magnitude. So it's, it's an enormous uh, challenge to basically under, annotate the human genome. And we've developed some extremely sensitive techniques for using comparative genomics and using something that we like to call evolutionary signatures for understanding where are the protein coding segments of the human genome. So these signatures are basically looking at how nucleotides and how specific codons, uh, which are triplets of nucleotides that encode a single amino acid, how they evolve across related species. And what we use there is the, the fact that the evolutionary constraint is acting at the level of protein, and therefore the underlying nucleotides are free to change as long as they preserve that selected function. In the case of a protein coding region, that gives you a very specific signature of protein coding-like evolution that we are able to look at across the 3 billion nucleotides of the human genome to discover hundreds of new human genes, hundreds of new human exons uh, to reject previously uh, hypothesized genes that are clearly not protein coding. And uh, we took that expertise and we applied it to the SARS-CoV-2 genome that had just recently published. So we basically went out uh, to the public databases and we identified another 44 closely related species or strains, if you wish. So species would be used for, um, you know, uh, organisms like us, like yeast, etc. But we use strains for, uh, for uh, viruses. So we basically looked at multiple other RNA genomes that are closely related. Uh, and when I say closely, I mean at the roughly the distance of human to other mammals. So this is roughly 60 million years of divergence in human. But in viruses, this obviously is much more condensed because viruses move much, much faster. So what we found there is that we could actually have a very clear signal that tells us what are protein coding regions in the SARS-CoV-2 genomes and what are not. And the results were quite striking. We could see the beautiful uh, conservation patterns of the first 16 uh, protein coding genes that are all encoded in a giant open reading frame and that are spliced from each other post-translationally. We could see the spike protein evolving super, super rapidly and yet showing very clear signals of protein coding evolution. But we also found some surprises. ORF10, which is the last uh, gene of the genome that has been annotated as protein coding for many, many related species, related strains of coronavirus, turns out not to have any protein coding constraint. So we were able to show that in fact, one of the quote unquote protein coding genes that people had annotated among the 29 protein coding genes. It's not like there's thousands, like there's in human. There's only 29 protein coding genes. Turns out one of them was just bogus. It's not a protein coding gene at all. So we now are able to look at RNA elements, functional elements within this region that are clearly functional or clearly selected evolutionarily, but at the nucleotide level, not at the protein coding level. 
we had another surprise that ORF6 and ORF8, which are known to evolve very rapidly, were in fact barely conserved at the nucleotide level. If you looked at the nucleotide evolution in other programs like Philo-P, for example, you would see that there's really no signal there for protein coding constraint. Uh, but in fact, using our, or for nucleotide level constraint, but in fact, using our method, we saw that there was very clear signature of protein coding constraint. So this is the converse. You basically have almost no nucleotide conservation, but very strong protein coding conservation. Then uh, another very big surprise came from two overlapping reading frames. So that's basically when encoded within the nucleotide sequence of one protein coding gene, you can almost write in the margins or write between the lines by shifting the reading frame of translation by off by one. So proteins are translated. So, you know, genes are translated every three nucleotides into proteins. Every three nucleotides is one codon. And therefore, in the same transcript, you can have one protein coding gene encoded, and you can have a different protein encoded by shifting by one, and a yet a third one by shifting by two. And viruses do that a lot because they have very compact genomes. What's different about SARS-CoV-2 and, and many of these uh, cervicoviruses, the SARS-related beta coronaviruses, and coronaviruses more generally, is that they have much larger genomes. So they have better proofreading, and that gives them the ability to have better, you know, larger genomes and uh, bigger envelopes and, and stuff like that. So that basically um, allows this genome to be larger. So they tend not to have as many protein overlapping genes. But in this particular case, overlapping the nucleocapsid protein that the RNA genome wraps around and is held together, and that also plays roles in immune evasion and so on and so forth. So uh, overlapping the end protein, which is also known as ORF9, there's another ORF, ORF9B, that also showed very clear signal of overlapping constraints. So two different reading frames were uh, conserved at the same time. So ORF9B was previously hypothesized. And in fact, we confirmed that indeed there's an overlapping signal there. And there were other uh, overlapping ORFs that had been previously being hypothesized. And we found that none of them, in fact, shows protein coding constraints, suggesting that only 9B from the previously hypothesized uh, open reading frames is actually protein coding. And the big, big surprise came within ORF3A. So ORF1 is this giant open reading frame that encodes 16 proteins or 11 proteins, depending on an internal frame shift. Uh, ORF2 is the spike protein. ORF3 is, uh, ORF3A, is in the next protein after that. And what we found is what we call ORF3C, which is a new, never previously seen protein coding gene that is hiding within ORF3A. So what we basically are able to do is look at this genome and just use our, all our techniques to revisit it, to revise it, and to now give the community a new basic annotation of the SARS-CoV-2 genome that allows us to now go and study systematically these novel proteins in, you know, ORF uh, C, 3C, for example, the overlapping protein of ORF9B to focus on the RNA functions overlapping ORF10, which does not encode a protein, and use again all that in fully public knowledge. So this is something that we posted on BioArchive immediately uh, as soon as we found the results. And this was eventually published a year later 
in nature uh, communications. But this is something that, again, the whole community has been posting these publicly uh, in, a, in a giant sort of collaborative family. The other thing that happened through this effort is that we noticed that different papers were using different names for many of these overlapping uh, genes. For example, ORF3B and ORF3D were confused in many papers. And some people were referring to one when in fact meaning the other and so on and so forth. So we actually brought the whole community of genomicists for coronavirus genomes. And we wrote another paper that sort of proposes a reference naming for all of the genes to sort of resolve all these ambiguities and all these errors. Um, and, and again, that, that was just beautiful to sort of see how responsive everyone was in the community and how uh, generously everyone was giving their time to come together and write this, uh, this revision. The next thing we, we did is actually exploit the huge number of variants that have been isolated and the mutations that have been called on these variants of the uh, different isolates of the current pandemic to study how is the genome evolving today, right now, compared to how it has been evolving over these millions of mammalian equivalent uh, evolution. And what we found was quite striking the speed with which different genes are evolving in evolutionary time is quite predictive of the speed with which things are evolving today in the current pandemic. So genes that are just really fast evolving in general are fast evolving in the current pandemic. And genes that are very slow evolving are slow evolving in the current pandemic, with two exceptions. One exception is actually the spike protein that everybody has been, of course, talking about. So spike S1 has, which is the first part of the protein that sort of binds the ACE2 receptor and then attaches to the whole cell before the S2 part of the protein basically enables in insertion of the RNA genome inside our cells. What we found is that the S1 portion of the protein that was very, very fast evolving between different strains, between different uh, distantly related genomes, closely related genomes, is in fact much slower evolving in the current pandemic. And this could simply mean that the adaptation of S1 to the human host is quite a good match. And that because this pandemic is so quote unquote young, in the human species that we haven't yet started evolving our ACE2 receptor away from it. We haven't, you know, there's no natural adaptation to fight this virus as there is, for example, in bats. So between different bat species, there's this coevolution of these viruses that are hosted by the bats. And the, the, there's millions of years of coevolution between the two. So there's a lot of opportunity for adaptation uh, between the host and the virus. Whereas in this particular case, I mean, in human time scale, a year and a half is nothing evolutionarily. So, so basically we're a very young species for this and our immune system hasn't built defenses against the spike protein and other proteins yet. So the, the virus basically early in the pandemic is able to freely change without having to and adapt all of its other proteins without having to adapt this S1 protein that appears to be very well adapted already to the human host. So that, that was the first surprise. The second surprise 
was the nucleocapsid protein, which was super slowly evolving in different uh, coronaviruses, is in fact much faster evolving in the current pandemic. And in fact, the fastest evolving region of the genome is exactly a region of the nucleocapsid protein, which is overlapping an epitope for our immune system. So that might suggest that nucleocapsid is in fact evolving rapidly to avoid detection by the human host. Well, this That's fascinating. A, a, I, I was gonna ask you, I'd like to um, just touch on sort of the variants that are in the mutations that are yeah. evolving uh, with this virus. Um, how has your research sort of helped identify that or maybe, you know, how can we get ahead of it? Uh, is that something your team is, yeah. is looking at? It's a, it's a great question. So, so again, this is again, a story of collaboration. So we're collaborating with Nevin Krogan right now over at UCSF. What, uh, what we're finding there is that if you start looking at the alpha variant and the delta variant, there's of course mutations in the spike protein, but we're also seeing mutations in other proteins, including the new genes that we're predicting, the new protein coding genes that, that we're discovering. And what we're seeing there is, for example, if you look at the um, one of the ORFs that I mentioned earlier, namely ORF9B versus uh, the nucleocapsid uh, ORF, what Nevin, what Nevin Krogan's group found is that there's an increase in the translation of 9B. There's an increased abundance of the 9B protein that overlaps nucleocapsid in the delta variant and also in the alpha variant. Um, and they had postulated that perhaps this is due to a change in the uh, transcription of the corresponding um, uh, transcript. So let me make a quick parenthesis here <laughs> to basically say how incredibly ingenious this genome is. So let me describe what's happening when the virus first enters your cells. So there, as I mentioned, the spike one protein attaches the spike two, basically the second portion of the protein basically leads to a conformational change that will then open up your membrane and insert a single messenger RNA from that virus. Okay, we have 20,000 protein coding genes, we have hundreds of thousands of different transcript isoforms. And in any one moment in our cells, there's really thousands upon thousands of RNA molecules floating around. We're talking about the insertion of one RNA molecule now. That's basically coming into a human cell, which is hundreds of times its size, and is gonna hijack and take over that cell. I mean, Mission Impossible has nothing on this genome in terms of one infiltration taking over an entire society, which is our cell. What happens? So the, the mRNA, a single innocuous mRNA, enters the cell. Our transcriptional machinery, the virus has no transcriptional machinery, our transcriptional machinery will see this positive strand RNA molecule and say, all right, seems like it's my job to translate. So this looks good to me, I'll translate it. And it will start translating. And every single time an mRNA is seen by the translation machinery, by the ribosome, the ribosome will basically look for a start coda and then start translating, making amino acids, and it will find a stop codon and it will stop translating. So the first 11 genes, 11 proteins, 
are translated from that one mRNA by starting translation with an ATG and then continuing and continuing and continuing. And as this one protein gets formed, it starts folding onto itself inside our cells, single mRNA. And the, th the third part, the third uh, protein that is encoded in that very giant open reading frame, which is like 16,000 nucleotides long, so one of the longest uh, you know, uh, proteins to be translated inside our cells, it will start creating these folds in these domains. And the third one is actually a cleavage protein that will basically go around and grab onto the other ones and cut them. So you now have this cutting of multiple, of 11 different protein products that's happening from this one mRNA translation. It's remarkable. So basically there's, it's like a Trojan horse. One person enters and then they free up all their partners and now you have 11 proteins in there. The second thing that happens as these proteins are now translated, they start changing our own cells. They start marking up all of our other mRNAs as nah, this is no good, don't translate it. So that the ribosome machinery of our cells is now focused almost exclusively in translating copies of the mRNA itself of the virus. So suddenly the cell is starting to be taken over. So the machinery is now redirected to making copies of that RNA. The other, so, and, and while our own RNAs are, are starting to get degraded by our own machinery that basically says, oh, there's something wrong with this one. Let me degrade it because the, some of these proteins are going off and marking those. So that's the first 11 proteins. I mentioned that the first open reading frame can be either 11 or 16 proteins. How do the 16th happen? By having a program frame shift that causes the ribosome to skip by one nucleotide. And therefore, instead of meeting the stop codon of ORF11, it will basically continue and it'll now translate ORFs 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So that basically creates another set of proteins now at a lower abundance. So ORF 1 through 11 is higher abundance than you know, 12 through 16 is lower abundance. And all of these are now starting to do something very funky. So remember how I told you that every uh, protein, every, every, uh, every RNA molecule will basically lead to effectively one translation. There's no internal reinitiation in the human genome. That's very rare. So our genes are monocystronic rather than polycystronic, basically meaning that they only encode one protein at a time. So how do you translate ORF 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10? Well, not 10, but all the way to 9 that are encoded after that giant operating frame. The way that you do that, again, this is so beautiful. The, the genome itself contains these transcription regulatory sequences or TRSs intervening between, you know, right before ORF 2, right before ORF 3, right before ORF 4, and so on and so forth. And these will basically link up to the beginning of the normal transcript, the normal RNA of the virus, and they will cut off the intervening part so that they are now the first open reading frame of that transcript. And then same thing for the third one, it will become the first one by, by cutting off everything between, you know, before them. So you now end up with this, this single mRNA that has now created all of these partner proteins 
One of these partner proteins is basically grabbing the RNA itself, which is positive strand, copying it onto the negative strand, and then copying it again onto the positive strand, and copying it in on the negative and the positive. So you end up with both positive and negative strand RNAs. So it's basically making more copies of itself. And many of those are now getting truncated into what we call subgenomic RNAs, such that there's all of the surrounding, all of the remaining open reading frames that are basically now gonna make new proteins, including spike and so on and so forth, nucleocapsid. So all of the proteins necessary for packaging the virus are basically ORFs two through nine, whereas all of the proteins necessary for hijacking the cell are one through 11 and then one through 16. It will then go and make additional proteins that are now necessary for getting out of that cell and then taking over the rest of your body. So the first part is taking over that cell and now you're now constructing more copies of the, of the virus. You're packaging it up with a nucleocapsid with the RNA wrapping around it. You're basically building the you know, uh, envelope you, and that's the envelope protein. There's the membrane protein there, you know, E and M, and then there's a spike protein that basically creates this corona um, look. So what we found is that the alpha variant and the delta variant, for example, are making much more of this ORF9B. How's that possible? Again, this is the nucleocapsid transcript, the N transcript, ORF9A, but, or ORF9, uh, simply, but every now and then, the signal that uh, the ribosome reads to start translating here, every now and then that ribosome will miss the initial translation initiation signal. So every RNA has a start position for, of course, transcription, but then a start position for translation. And that ATG has a context, what we like to call the COSAC sequence, named after the scientists who discovered it, but the COSAC sequence of the translation determines with what efficiency the ribosome will start there. And if you have a lower efficiency sequence, if the COSAC score is lower, you will skip the first one and maybe start translating at the second amino acid. So what's happening with, or with variant alpha and variant delta is that they have, what we discovered is that they have a lower affinity for translation initiation for nucleocapsid. And the nucleocapsid RNA is enormously uh, highly uh, transcribed. And that basically means that if you lower the affinity with which N gets translated, that means that 9B will get translated much more frequently. So there's a shift from N to 9B, and there's a giant sort of increase in the translation of 9B that is associated with both the alpha variant and the delta variant. And one of the things that Navin's group is trying to do now is figure out what does this do biologically? How does that go inside the cell? So this is one of the ways in which we are trying to understand the evolution of the virus. The first is looking at the mutations that are happening and interpreting these mutations biologically. So for example, in the Nature Communications paper, we showed that the D614G mutation in the spike protein, which means that at position 614 of the spike protein, which is about a thousand nucleotides long, there's a shift from a D amino acid to a G amino acid, which basically causes the strains that carry that mutation to increase in frequency. And we've seen that early in the pandemic. So basically, you know, last year in March, in April, in May, we could see the increase of the D614G mutation happening in so many different countries independently 
wherever it was, it was just increasing in frequency. And it became, of course, the dominant version uh, in the pandemic. And basically what we showed is that, in fact, that mutation had never before, before happened in the history of the 44 viruses that we had compared. And it was happening in an 11 amino acid uh, stretch that had never seen a single change in any of the 44 genomes, suggesting that perhaps this was an adaptation to the human host that was happening over and over and over again independently. Uh, basically, the, the, the two sides is number one, understanding the mutations that are associated with these variants and what do they do functionally based on our understanding of the, of the language of DNA, the, 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 the signals that the protein uh, translation machinery, the transcription machinery are using to use, utilize this genome. That's number one. And then number two, using our evolutionary comparisons and the lens of evolution to understand how these are changing across uh, different, um, you know, in, in the dynamics of current day evolution of the virus. Sort of shifting gears a little bit here, but related. In the past, you've studied obesity and cancer uh, in, in our genomes. And, you know, since the outset of COVID-19, what are your thoughts about the interconnectedness of disease now with the world's focus shifted to comorbidities, specifically with uh, obesity? So we've studied obesity, we've studied Alzheimer's, we've studied, you know, of course, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and uh, it's, it's kind of crazy for a lab to be working on so many different biological topics. And um, the beauty of it, however, is that by by being, I don't want to say generalist, but 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 being multi-specialist, by working on so many different disorders and having so many different collaborations spanning all these different areas, we're actually finding surprising interconnections between them. In particular, if you look at obesity and Alzheimer's disease, for example, there's a, a tremendous comorbidity between the two. So individuals who are obese are much more likely to get Alzheimer's disease. If you look at Alzheimer's and COVID-19, again, obese individuals and type 2 diabetes individuals uh, are, you know, twofold or more, uh, more likely to die and to contact the virus. So there's a lot of interplay between our, uh, you know, between, between different diseases. If you now look at Alzheimer's and SARS-CoV-2, you would say, okay, great. What does, what does one have to do with the other? Maybe obesity is the uh, only common uh, form here? Uh, the answer is uh, <laughs> very, very complicated. If you look at our brain, one of the things that we have been studying is the blood-brain barrier. This is a set of proteins that is found in all of our vasculature, all of our vessels in the brain, the microvesicles and the capillaries that basically coat them and prevent pathogens from entering the brain. So that's the first line of defense against the brain. But every now and then, pathogens do enter the brain. So what happens then? If our immune system is not allowed in, then what happens? Inside our brain, uh, we have a diversity of cell types. Neurons are, of course, the stars of the show because they are the ones that, are tra that transmit all of the you know, memories, thinking, reasoning, uh, pattern finding, etc. But there's a lot of cells surrounding these neurons. So basically there's excitatory neurons on one hand and inhibitory neurons on the other hand. The, the, both are needed to sort of create the diversity of human behaviors that we're experiencing. 
Oligodendrocytes and astrocytes are these large glial cells, glial from glue, <laughs> which were initially thought to just be supportive of neurons, but are found more and more to have dramatically complex functions. Oligodendrocytes basically coat the axons of neurons for electrical signals to be better insulated and better transmitted. And when oligodendrocytes fail, then we basically lose myelin and there's a lot of cognitive loss, including in Alzheimer's disease. Now, what is myelin made of? It's lipids. So this insulating sheath that happens surrounding the axons is made of lipids. Now, in obesity, there's an enormous amount of lipid dysregulation. So basically, if you look at, uh, you know, insulin secretion, and if you look at the phospholipid bilayer of our cells, if you look at the secretion of proteins, if you look even at transport, what is the strongest genetic association with Alzheimer's, with sporadic Alzheimer's? It's APOE, apolipoprotein E with the E4 variant causing a hundredfold increased risk compared to any other variant in the genome. So it's and you know by far the most important uh, risk for Alzheimer's is APOE4. So what happens with the E4 version of the APOE uh, apolipoprotein? So, so uh, what does apolipoprotein mean? So it's basically a, a lipid transporter. So again, lipid, front and center in Alzheimer's. So lipid transport is utilized in, you know, everywhere in our cells, not just for the myelin sheath, but also for energetics. So our brain is only three pounds heavy. That's a tiny, tiny fraction of our overall body weight. And yet it utilizes about 20% of our energy daily. So this one organ, is incredibly energy rich. So there have been dramatic transformations to both make our brain more energy efficient, but also to make our brain much more energy consuming compared to the rest of our body. Compared to any other primate, we have this disproportionate, and of course, any other mammal, fish, or any other animal on earth, we have this disproportionate allocation of energy resources in our brain. So all like oscillation and all of these diverse processes are needed to basically generate an enormous amount of energy for our daily cognitive functions. Along with that comes a lot of lipid regulation because lipids are a major source of energy production of ATP, of all of the uh, you know, energetic needs of our brain are basically very closely related to lipids. And then there's another aspect, which is the byproducts of all of that energy production. Every time you produce ATP, there's oxidative reactive species that are, you know, chemicals that are causing damage in your cells. So giant energetic production is also associated with cellular damage. And again, lipids are necessary for transporting all of that uh, outside the cells and sort of clearing out the cells through the CSF, the cerebral spinal fluid, through the vasculature and so on and so forth. So all of these processes are now connecting obesity with Alzheimer's and now where do pathogens come in? As I mentioned earlier, the immune cells of the circulating blood are not allowed. And that takes us to the next cell type of our brain, which is the microglia. So the microglia are basically uh, the immune, the resident immune cells of our brain. So they, they have the same lineage as the blood circulating mon monocytes. 
and the same lineage as all of our resident immune cells of the rest of the organs, known as macrophages. So if you look at obesity, for example, M1 versus M2 macrophage in our uh, adipose tissue will basically lead to increased or decreased risk of obesity based on, again, the role of resident immune cells in our tissues. If you look at uh, the resident immune cells of our brain, the microglia, they play tremendous roles. One of the things that we showed back in a nature paper in 2015 in collaboration with Li Guizai is that if you look at the genetic variants associated with Alzheimer's disease, we talked about APOE4, but there are thousands of genetic variants scattered across the genome. If you now use our epigenomic maps, so we've constructed maps of the human epigenome for many, many years, and the reference map of the human epigenome was one of the things that we published in another issue of Nature also in 2015. So as part of the epigenomics roadmap project, we basically annotated the control regions of thousands of, uh, of hundreds of different um, tissues in the human body. So looking at 117 tissues, for example, and more recently 834 tissues of the human body, we can provide a reference annotation of the control circuitry. So something extremely important to realize is that if you look at common disease, including Alzheimer's, obesity, diabetes, everything, uh, schizophrenia or psychiatric disorders, you basically have thousands of common variants that are associated with the disease, each of which plays a very, very small role with some rare expression, exceptions like FTO in obesity or APOE in uh, Alzheimer's. But basically the, the rest is just tiny, tiny little effects. And by, you know, by, by far, these uh, regions are not perturbing protein coding genes. Instead, they're perturbing the circuitry of the cell. They're perturbing the control regions that, that govern when genes are turned on and turned off across different tissues, different cell types, different environmental uh, situations. So what we found in 2015 is that after having built this map of the human epigenome, we looked at brain, of course, and we looked at you know, dozens of other tissues and cell types. And what we found is that the genetic variants associated with Alzheimer's were not localizing at all in our brain signal. It was remarkable. Our brain enhancers were just simply not lighting up at all for Alzheimer's, which was puzzling because we obviously know that it acts in the brain. But what we found is an enrichment in monocytes. And these are the resin immune cells of the brain. These are the same lineage as macrophages in other tissues and microglia in the brain. So that basically said, wait a minute, perhaps the microglia that only make up 5% or 10% of the cells in any one region of your brain, perhaps they are the culprits for why we can have an Alzheimer's predisposition. And that is also related to the amyloid hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease where, you know, in, in, in familial Alzheimer's, which is earlier onset and runs in families, the genes that are associated with Alzheimer's are pointing to all of these amyloid pathways. But if you look at sporadic Alzheimer's, you basically see a very different picture. Almost none of these genetic variants is in fact directly associated with amyloid. Instead, these variants are localizing in these lipid transports, a lot of cardiovascular, which we've also been studying extensively, and a lot of uh, microglia, 
the you know immune circuitry. And now this basically points perhaps inflammation or immune processes preceding the onset of amyloid, maybe by decades. And these microglia are also involved in the clearing out of debris, in the clearing out of all of this oxidative stress. And they are, that's the place where APOE, for example, gets hugely expressed, astrocytes and microglia. So I mentioned oligodendrocytes are basically setting up this myelin sheath. Astrocytes are instead um, controlling, clearing, and sort of working with microglia, serving as an interface to the environment, touching the vasculature with their end feet and uh, interacting with that as well. So there's this incredibly complex interplay between all of these different uh, processes. It sort of brings up the, the age old debate, I guess, you know, can we sort of avoid this genetic determinism and, and what role does genetics versus environment play in, in human physiology and performance and cognition? Can you, can you speak to that? So uh, if you look at Alzheimer's disease, you basically have this enormous role of early life in Alzheimer's. If you have uh, an enriching environment when you are first developing, your risk of Alzheimer's in late life is decreased dramatically. If you speak a foreign language, your risk of Alzheimer's is decreased dramatically. So the environment plays a major, major role in you know, things that happen decades later. And um, there's, of course, a genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's. There's a genetic predisposition to disease. There's a huge diversity of roles that genetic variants are playing. But one of the things that we're learning from our research is that you cannot ignore the environment and you cannot ignore the genetics. Basically, there are genetic differences between humans. There's genetic differences in how our brain functions, in how our muscles function, in how our metabolism functions. For example, I'm homozygous risk for an obesity variant that predisposes me to obesity, this FTO locus that uh, our, our team dissected in 2015 is you know, the strongest genetic association with uh, obesity. And I carry both copies of the, of the risk allele. So that basically means that I have to constantly struggle to not eat, to sort of you know, watch my diet, to watch my exercise level in order to avoid this you know, uh, genetic lottery that I kind of didn't get so lucky at. So I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that every one of us has, has different predispositions to different types of behaviors, different types of physiology, different types of preferences, different types of um, disease. But at the same time, um, I, I want to bring you back to uh, the movie Gattaca, uh, where uh, the, the tagline was, there's no gene for the human soul or something like that. That basically uh, was all about a society where, you know, decades from now, we are able to predict human physiology, predict human cognition, predict human physical performance, and use our genetic makeup to tailor people into different professions. So a dystopian future where instead of walking into an interview, they just look at your DNA and they basically say, congratulations, you got the job or congratulations, you know, sorry, you didn't get the job uh, based on your predisposition. And again, the point of that movie was that human behavior can, and, and the human spirit can overcome a lot of the limitations that we have from our genetics. 
So I think that if we want an equitable society, if we want people to, to sort of truly flourish to uh, you know, the maximum uh, that they can, we should be understanding on one hand that there are genetic differences between individuals, but on the other hand, rejecting genetic determinism. So I'm not looking at my genome and saying, oh, great, I'm going to be obese, forget it. I'm saying, well, no, this is what I got to work on. And in the same way, I know so many people who have a genetic, you know, strong effect mutation that will have doomed them for X or Y or Z. And they're saying, forget that. I'm going to overcome the odds and I'm going to do, you know, so much more than what my genome would have, quote unquote, destined me to. So again, as a genomicist, we are looking at these signals, we're understanding these signals, we're understanding the diversity and the beauty of diversity in the human population. The fact that every one of my children is so different from, from each other, that, that tells you so much about just the beauty of diversity of, of how our brains, our emotions functions dramatically different from birth. I mean, things that I could see at my children when they were first born, I can still see in them today, You know, many years later. So we have to embrace that every one of us is different, but also we have to embrace the fact that we are so much more than what our genome says, and we are able to overcome these shortcomings and sometimes read the genome to prepare ourselves for some, something we might not be super happy about, but to you know, combat it and to address it much uh, earlier than if we didn't have that knowledge. And again, very importantly, there's a small number of strong effect mutations that every one of us carries, but by far the vast majority of our variation is very weak effect mutations. And, you know, obesity, for example, is thought to be 70% genetic. Intelligence is thought to be 50% genetic. You know, height is thought to be 70 to 80% genetic. So there's a lot of, you know, proportion of that overall phenotypic variation that is genetically encoded, but there's a big, big chunk that we have full control over based on the decisions we make, based on the choices we make, based on our nutrition, our exercise, our, you know, on, onset uh, every morning. And I think that's where our educational system should be stepping in and giving opportunity to everyone to sort of really reach their full potential uh, across the board. That's fascinating um, and hopeful at the same time. And your, your team, your group is doing uh, wonderful research. We appreciate your time today, Manolis. Thank you very much for your insights. And if anybody has any questions, uh, would like to learn more about uh, the work you're doing, where would you direct them? So just uh, email me, manoli at mit.edu. You can also go on our website at compbio.mit.edu, so computational biology, compbio.mit.edu. You will find uh, tons of resources. We've published over 200 papers. Uh, you can find them all there. We, I've given you know, dozens of talks. Uh, you can find them all there. I've uh, recorded all of my lectures. All of my MIT lectures are publicly available. You can find all of the videos of these lectures there. Uh, every interview that I've given, including this one, will be posted there. So uh, tons of resources there. Uh, please go there. And then you can also follow me uh, at my Twitter page. We post all of our papers there. When I speak at different venues, I also post it there. So Manolis Kellis is the, you know, just one word is my Twitter handle. So lots of information online. 
If you're interested in learning more about the CSAIL Alliance program and the latest research at CSAIL, please visit our website at cap.csail.mit.edu and listen to our podcast series on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next month for a brand new edition of the CSAIL Alliance's podcast and stay ahead of the curve.